Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We share good news and godly wisdom to empower you to be salt and light in every season of life. When your integrity is more important than your influence and you value anointing above ambition, nothing can stop you. Listen in as Rev. Samuel Rodriguez and Dr. Doug Stringer talk about the importance of having your heart, head, and hands in alignment with God's will. True success comes not from being consumed with the likes of many, but by being obsessed with the love of God. After this episode, check out our show notes on your favorite streaming platform and visit a awordinseasonpodcast.org to download a free 30-day devotional that will encourage you to draw closer to the Lord. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. What a great joy to have my friend Sammy Rodriguez, or more appropriately, Dr. Samuel Rodriguez, who is the lead pastor of New Season, one of America's most influential megachurches, according to Newsmax. He's also the president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, one of the world's largest Christian organizations. He's also the best-selling author of Be Light and the executive producer of three films, including Breakthrough. Sammy is the recipient of the Martin Luther King Jr. Leadership Award presented by the Congress of Racial Equality. And I can go on and on about Sammy, but it's so good to have you, Dr. Rodriguez, and thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. So appreciate your friendship and all the years of us getting to interface together, serve the Lord together. I'm just blown away by all that God has done in your life. And I want to get right into asking you a question because God has placed you in strategic places all over our country and around the world over the years, and yet you've been able to stay tethered and stay grounded in your biblical faith and your place and covenant relationship with God and your family. So as a high-profile leader, how do you do it? How do you stay tethered to the Lord, and how do you stay grounded? Destiny and discipline can never be separated. What does that mean? It's God-infused, biblically substantiated, Holy Spirit sustained discipline. I'm surrounded by amazing people. So personally in my life, I'm, I'm obsessed with health, to living a holy, healed, healthy, happy, humble, hungry, honoring life. Um, I'm driven by this idea that when your integrity is more important than your influence, nothing can stop you. When integrity is more important than influence, nothing can stop you. When you are driven by anointing rather than ambition, nothing can stop you. When your hunger for righteousness is greater than your fear of criticism, nothing can stop you. That's all biblically substantiated. So every day I wake up with that sort of rubric in my mindset, and then my activities reflect that. What's the will of God in my life? What does God want me to accomplish today? And then I'm surrounded by the most amazing people on the planet. Each of the silos you referenced, the church, the NHLC, the movies, I have incredible teams that basically do the hard work. And I come along as the visionary and cast vision, but they do the hard work. So I'm surrounded by some of the most amazing people teaching me, Doug, that in leadership, you are who surrounds you. So you can have the greatest vision in the world. You can be full of passion. You can write the vision on, on a thousand and one walls. But if you're surrounded by people who are myopic in their thinking, who, who are not living with that sort of integrity over influence motif, who are not even passionate then you're never going to see the fulfillment of the vision God placed upon your heart. So you are who surrounds you, indeed. And wow. that's how we manage what we currently have. We could unpack what you just said, all those three things that you mentioned, that, that right there, if, and not worrying about criticisms of people and, and living righteously. I mean, that right there could be unpacked in 
in a book. I mean, that, there's so much there, and I'm sure you've written about them, preached about them. Tell us a little bit about your personal journey in the Lord. How did you get the revelation of the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection? I grew up in an evangelical home. My parents are not preachers. I grew up in a town in, in Pennsylvania, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Bethlehem. That's why I have a messianic complex. It's a steel town, Lehigh Valley. My dad was a Mack truck worker, retired now. And I grew up with a, with a blue collar, a Calvinistic work ethic, just grinding sort of spirit in a grinding sort of region. It inevitably became the Rust Belt. I grew up in the 80s. It grew up, it, it became the Rust Belt when the economy collapsed and the steel industry went uh, but then now it's one of the most thriving regions. It's one hour away from Manhattan, from New York City. So it's like a New York suburb and growing with hospitals and technology and so forth. Back to the story. My parents were not preachers. I, I used to attend an evangelical church growing up. I just had this encounter with God when I was 14 years of age. It changed my life. It was a pretty amazing encounter. I need to put things in perspective, Doug. I'm a Trekkie. What does that mean for your audience? Uh, I'm, I was born with a strong affinity for, for mathematics. I'm a math nerd. I still believe calculus is the language of God. Um, I graduated from Lee University. So um, I'm a Trekkie. So I was born obsessed with Star Trek. And I'm a preacher like Kirk, but I think like Spock for all the Trekkies out there. Uh, so because of that, I used to grow up in that church and doubt everything. And I mean, I doubted the existence of God, the power of God, the word of God, the validity of God, everything. And, and I, would, I would feed into the idea, Freudian's idea of this being the opium of humanity and so forth. I was 14 years old, Doug. The craziest thing happened. I'm seated in an Assembly of God church in Allentown, Pennsylvania, right next to Bethlehem. This guy leading the Teen Challenge Choir back then for David Wilkerson. Some of your audience may know who that is from a, a ministry in Reedersburg, Pennsylvania. I'd never met the guy before. First time in our church. His name is Bernie Gillow. G-I-L-L-O-T. He walks in there in the middle of a song, middle of a song and says, stop. The Lord is telling me there's a Sammy in this audience. Not a young man, not, not just uh, sort of generic descriptors. There's a young Sammy in this audience. I'm the only Sammy in my church. The, you know, it's a Latino church. They were very introverted. I'm kidding. They're not. So they, they all, they went like, ahí está el muchacho, which means, ahí está el muchacho. Right, So I'm going like, if this rapture stuff that that pastor has been preaching about is real, let it happen right now. Because my pastor calls me out. He says, Sammy, he's talking to you literally by name. I walk up and I'm in the aisle. I walk up to the front. He looks at me and says, Sammy, the Lord says, and he begins to unpack everything I'm doing right now. Doug. Everything in ministry. But watch this. Here's the clincher. This is, this is one of his lines. And the Lord says, in addition to ministry and preaching and all that, you're going to pray over presidents. Now stop. That's pretty specific. I'm 14. I'm thinking the president of the boys club, YMCA. You're going to pray over presidents. And he was specific, presidents of the United States. Uh, you know, he was laid out. He, there was a young lady in the audience on the left-hand side who saw this and went, if this is true, I'm going to wait for that boy to grow up and marry him. That's my wife of 32 years. I mean, what are the chances, right, from a mathematical probability? And again, Sammy Rodriguez needed this because I'm a, I'm a Thomas. I'm a doubter. And because I'm a doubter, it's not like everyone needs to get a specific word about their destiny regarding. I needed that because otherwise I don't think I would have kept on going. 
my, then I, you know, I, I've had moments where I said, Lord, I really give you everything. I received the fullness of the finished work of Christ, your saving grace. I receive it. I Romans 10, 9, my life on steroids. And I confessed and believed. And even though I had done that nominally from a religious perspective, I did it from a, I am no longer doubting the reality of a living God perspective. Boom. And the rest, as they say, is history. And that's how we got here right now. Wow. You know, I, I can imagine what you were sensing in that moment when he's talking about all these things and yeah, amen, amen. And all of a sudden, and presidents of the United States, you're going to be praying over them. It's like, uh, I can't even handle what's happening right here in front of me right now. I, I remember in 1981, 82, I was uh, traveling with Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole. Uh, the founder of the Christian Men's Network. And I remember we were at a large gathering of every major Christian leader at that time at, at a word explosion. And I remember being on my knees in my hotel room there across from Oral Roberts University. And the, in the hotel, the name of the restaurant was called Jeremiah's. And the Lord said, go to the room and reread the uh, first chapter of Jeremiah. Mm. And I remember getting on my knees, Lord, and I would say, Lord, I'm just a young guy. I'm only in my 20s. I'm a, I'm a young guy. And the Lord said, if you'll never forget where you've come from, I'll take you to heads of state and all over the world. I'm thinking, God, I can't even take care of the homeless people that I've already got living in my apartment. How am I going to do that? And yet all those things that God promises, he takes us through a process, but he will always fulfill his promise through that process. So I thank God that you said yes to the Lord all these years. And what got you involved in pioneering your current church, as well as being the president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference? I picked up the mantle at the age of 14. At the age of 16, the, the Lord just infused me with his spirit, began to preach. My pastor was amazing. I had a pastor who was an Elijah to me, an amazing man of God, impeccable integrity, who believed in the calling. We was there when I was called, but way beyond that, even if that man never from Teen Challenge never would have walked in, my pastor was convinced and convicted there was a calling upon my life. I was blessed with the best pastor on the planet uh, who, who prepared the way, who mentored me and so forth. And from there, I, I became a youth pastor inevitably while attending Penn State University. And then I, I led something called the Hispanic Youth Congress that became national. An amazing thing took place there, preaching a lot in Texas and conventions with like nine, 10,000 people, primarily Assembly of God young people on, during Thanksgiving weekend, which is wild to me. Uh, they would gather, and they still do, on Thanksgiving Day, and they have a youth convention. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing. During that entire scale, from 14 to about 29, I went through a process of maturing. When I lay out the, the rubric of integrity over influence, anointing over ambition, hunger for righteousness over fear of criticism. Uh, it's because from 14 to about 29, I recognized it was a battle. And I acknowledge the fact that in ministry and in leadership, the battle is not necessarily what people think. The battle is not about resources and about connections. and No, no. The battle is between your mind and your mantle. The true battle is between your mind and your mantle. Wow. The, the true battle is between the, the thoughts in your head and the calling upon your life. The true battle is between anointing and anxiety. It's mm. between drama and destiny. It's between imagination and memories. Think about that. The true battle is between the memories of your past and imagination for your future. And if every day you think more about the past and memories 
If memories overcome imagination, you're never going to have ingenuity, innovation, or creativity. You're never going to grow. So I went through that battle. And, and I had moments in my life where, where we had to overcome some generational realities that transcended way beyond me. Um, some character shortcomings in Samuel Rodriguez. I saw myself as a 14-year-old, 15-year-old, 16-year-old saying, wait a minute, that does not completely line up with scripture. And, and, and I was at least cognizant of it while I fought through it. And then when we finally landed in a spot where this reality came to place, I discovered that what makes me holy is not what I do, but rather the Holy Spirit of God inside of me. And if I let the Holy Spirit of God guide me, if I am empowered by that spirit, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, free with that spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.17, driven by that spirit, Galatians 5.16, filled with that spirit, Ephesians 5.18, defined by that spirit, Romans 8.11. That, that verse from Paul changed my life. The same identical spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. Not a kindred spirit, not the uncle of the cousin of the spirit, but the same spirit. Doug, that changed me. I went, holy cow, Batman. The same identical spirit that raised Jesus lives inside of me. The moment I placed my life in the hands of that wonderful Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, my life changed forevermore. So it was no longer Sam trying to do right. Sam did right because he was driven by that spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit of God that defined me, right? So everything changed. We started the organization, the NHCLC. Jesse Miranda, who was my spiritual dad, passed the baton over to me. He was the first uh, leader of a, a Latino national network. He was uh, passing the baton. And right about 2000, 2001, he began the process and God told him Samuel Rodriguez. So he, there were three candidates and, he, and God told him Sam's it. So he passed the baton. He gave me permission to rebrand it, rename it and start a brand new corporation. He stayed as the chairman emeritus to the day he passed away. He was amazing. What a, what a forward thinking leader. And the organization blew up to 42,000 churches. And then in 2010, I come out of preaching for T.D. Jakes and I am in my American Airlines flight and the spirit of God hits me. I wrote a book called The Lamb's Agenda about reconciling Billy Graham's message with Dr. King's march. And, it, and then the spirit of God hit me and said, Samuel, it's time. And I'm going, time for what? And, and God tells me, well, Sacramento, where you live, a multi-ethnic kingdom culture church. Because in Sacramento, we had beautiful churches, and we still do. Beautiful pastors, the best on the planet. But there, were, there was no necessarily influential, significant, multi-ethnic work. We had white churches here, black churches here, Latino churches here, Asian churches, but not a multi-ethnic kingdom culture church. So that was my assignment. He gave me that, watch this, he gave me that word in August of 2010. It's going to sound ridiculous. This is not, I don't want anyone in your audience to ever think this is the way to do it. It is not unless God gives you an amazing word with clear you know, uh, specificity around it. The month of August, he gives me that word. By the end of September, we started the church plan. You're supposed to do a year of you know, you know, a forecasting, marketing, small groups, beta tech. Yes, that did not happen. Here's what the Lord told me. If, if you start the church and if you don't have 300 on the first day, it's not me. I'm going to give you a Gideon's army as a sign. If you have 299, it's not me. If you have over 300, it's me. We exceeded way over 300 day one. The rest is history. It's an amazing church that is 40% white, about 40% African-American, 20% Native American, Latino, and Asian with campuses in Los Angeles and Sacramento and an online campus that's right. That's what God did. 
and he continues to do. And I'm just honored and blessed to occupy this planet, to be to be an agent of change and just to depend on God every single day. That's amazing. And I love the name of the book because I've written uh, and spoke on and wrote articles about, and of course, we've seen the increase of Luke 21 being lived out, wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, ethnos against ethnos. We've seen such a divisiveness in our nation accumulating and coming into this last three years, and we've seen it lived out. Now, it's been there under the surface, but we're seeing it lived out. And yet the answer is still the church. And so I I wrote the centrality of the cross and that I'm not beholden to the party of the elephant or the party of the donkey. I'm beholden to the Lamb of God and the kingdom of the Lamb and the Lion. And so I believe that what you've been sharing for all these years and lived out, you know, a lot of people speak with theory, they speak things that preach good, but it's another thing to see the fruit of those messages. Dr. Cole taught me that time like light makes things manifest. Given enough time, the true character of an individual or an organization will be made known or manifest. And so time has proven the message. It's not just a good preach. It really is a message. It comes from the heart of God. Personally, as a leader, people see the success and the high visibility of you praying for all these presidents and being a part of the inaugurations and, and of course, uh, being involved in, in bringing forth issues that, that are important, especially about uh, immigration reform, justice reform, these other things that are very needed. We can't just sweep them under the rug. These are real. But you've been able to do that without compromising your biblical convictions at the same time. And, and we all have friends that would be more party-centric, ethnocentric, you know, rather than Christ-centric. And so, for me, I have to really hold to that, realizing that although I was born in Japan, my mother was Japanese, I'm a, an American of Asian descent. As much as I love the Asian culture, my first commitment is to God's word and to the family of Christ and still represent my culture. But at the same time, my first and foremost is the culture of Christ. Our friend, Dr. A.R. Bernard, when he got saved out of the nation of Islam. He was at a Nikki Cruz gathering. So he didn't remember a word Nikki Cruz said. He just thought the anointing was there. He goes, I want to come to Christ. And as a result, when he started his church, he came out of the nation of Islam. So he said that Christianity should be a culture. So he called it the Christian Cultural Church there in Brooklyn. And so how do you maintain that groundedness in your convictions in the midst of having to interact with all these streams of people in the marketplace and all the seven mountains or seven spheres of the culture, and yet maintain your groundedness in the Lord. So I've written this down. My children know it. My church knows it. It's a mantra. And it is for our family and for those that are close to me. When I was advising, by the grace of God, a George W. or even Obama, especially Obama for eight years, but then Trump for four, I would walk into the White House when I go to Hollywood to negotiate movies, same outline, ready for this? I walk in with the following. Samuel, remind yourself of the following. Today's complacency is tomorrow's captivity. Mm. Today's complacency is tomorrow's captivity. Samuel, number two, you are what you tolerate. You are what you tolerate. Number three, there is no such thing as comfortable Christianity. There isn't. Number four, truth must never be sacrificed on the altar of political or cultural expediency. You never sacrifice truth. Truth must never be sacrificed on the altar of political or cultural expediency. And number five, Samuel, in all that you do, 
reconcile your eschatology with your missiology. For your audience, for those that are not privy to seminary terms, eschatology, the end times, the coming of the Lord. While we all believe that Jesus is coming down, while we are waiting for Jesus to come down, Jesus is waiting for his church to stand up. So I always take the posture of, we're going to occupy until he comes. We're going to exert holy, divinely sustained influence until he comes. And that's our assignment. So that's what guides me. And I've had moments where I, I remember confronting in President Obama's administration, having some serious conversations, some hard ones. But I would call my wife immediately, my best buddy. She saw me grow up, only woman I've ever known in my entire life, and my confidant and my, my Caleb. And I would call her up and say, I don't think I'm coming back here. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not coming back. I just had this moment. And lo and behold, they would invite me back. So it, it's never sacrifice your integrity. Again, it's, it's principle driven. I know it sounds old school and archaic. It really works. This is why the Lord giveth, in the words of Job, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. I, I live life with the fear of the Lord, not unhealthy fear, but like kind of a, a, a beautiful fear. Sounds, you know, oxymoronic, beautiful fear. That fear of the Lord really ignites my faith. Isn't it crazy how there's a type of fear that could actually grow faith? And that's the fear that does it. Fear grows faith, the right fear, the fear of the Lord. So I know that if I blow it, if I compromise integrity, the same God who opened doors for me is the same God who will shut him, those doors tight. So I'm cognizant of that. So it's, it's not Sam. It's all God. I'm, I'm in that place because God made it happen. So I better do this right, right according to scripture, right according to integrity, righteousness, right according to even making sure that there's not one ounce of pride or arrogance, that it's all submitted to the foot of the cross, not rhetorically, but in every single sense, that I open doors for other people, that, that those that follow me do greater things than me. So if I'm building an empire around Sam Rodriguez, it is, it's not godly. But if I live like Elijah to Elisha and John the Baptist to Jesus and Jesus who said, even you who follow me will do greater things. If that's my worldview, that I know that my children and my children's children will do greater things than yours truly, uh, then the Lord will continue to just enlarge your territory. As long as it's not hype and just rhetorical, but it's pure from your heart, he'll do it. So that that's what does it right there. That, that sort of outline that I just did. I've uh, always shared with the people in our realms of relational equities that even in doing compassion ministry or compassion evangelism or uh, outreaches, that we don't have to compromise who we are. In other words, I don't have to be like the person I'm going to reach. I don't have to compromise That's my convictions to make them feel better. I just speak the truth in love. The ministry of my of presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit in me, the people even who maybe disagree with me, their, their heart and their mind are in conflict. And I remember... The, the governor of Banda Aceh after the tsunami in Indonesia was sharing with some of my team that was there as we were reaching out and helping throughout that time, said his, he goes, my mind and my heart are in conflict. And they said, why? He said, because when 9-11 happened, we danced in the streets at your calamity. But during our calamity, you're not dancing in the streets, you're here helping us. So in other words, he's saying my heart is being drawn not because of my fighting in the mind and my ideologies or my, my religion. My heart is being drawn because I see you living out your faith. What you're saying is so true. We have to let people see our light shine in such a way 
that draws others close to the Lord. I've never had to compromise the fact that I'm a Christian who helps anyone. If I'm working in Indonesia or I'm working in another country, a Muslim country, I've never had to say that I'm not a Christian. I say, look, we as a Christian organization help everyone. We're not here to just help Christians. We're here to help you. People begin to process, what is it about these people? And that's the distinction of true Christianity, institutional versus incarnational. We should be an incarnational people. If all we do is speak truth, we're mathematicians. If all we do is love, we're hippies. (laughs) I've been there. (laughs) I am serious. Because there, there are like ministries and organizations that is all love. It's not, it's not healthy balance. If all we do is speak truth, it's quantum physics, it's physics, and it's math. But the moment you combine truth with love, you are followers of Christ. Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Truth and love lead the way as attendants. Another version says they're the gatekeepers. Wow. So how do we change the world? Righteousness and justice, truth and love. And it's completely doable. It's reconciling, you've heard me a thousand and one times do this, the vertical and the horizontal planes of the Christian message. Righteousness with justice, sanctification with service, conviction with compassion, John 3.16 with Matthew 25, orthodoxy with orthopraxy. And it's the New Jerusalem and Houston, Texas. It's both and. The strongest part of the cross is what the nexus, the centrality. This is where you reconcile the fishes and the bread the optics of redemption with the metrics of reconciliation. We can do this. We can change the world. That's why I am a a big follower and and fan of what you do, because you never compromise. You do things with integrity. And there are some compassion. There are some ministries that that are focused on compassion, and that's beautiful. But unfortunately, they water down the the vertical, and they go all horizontal. That may give them food for a day, but you missed you know, give, feeding them for, for eternity. And we can feed them both vertically and horizontally. Well, that's what scripture, I think, is very clear that we can do good works and become dead works. Leonard Ravenhill used to share with me that, uh, Doug, let others live on the raw edge or the cutting edge. You and I should live on the edge of eternity. And I, that resonates in my heart every day when I think, Lord, there are so many on the edge of eternity. Regardless of my eschatology, if I'm pre, mid, post-trip, flipping the pan-trip, I'm, and I'm not taking that lightly, but I want to be ready every day. If my day is today, or if my day is 100 years from now, I want to make sure that I am being used by God, because many people are on the edge of eternity right now. Yeah. And if I can keep that focus that it's about eternity, it's not about my self-gratification. Uh, A.W. Toji used to say, self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. Self-absorption, self-righteousness, self-centeredness. I think if we can get out of that, you know, we're into selfies, right? So selfies, you know, really is the product of that self-centeredness and self, you know, self-absorption. Not that it's wrong. I mean, we all take selfies. I'm just saying we have to keep perspective, right? Because perspective is not always the truth, but it's the truth to those who perceive it. And we have a world that has uh, great misconceptions of what Christianity is. And they need to see the incarnation of Christ in each of us. You said in uh, something you wrote in in one of my books, you endorse leadership awakening. Uh, Our dark times require prophetic leadership, people who are committed to issuing a clarion call to followers of Jesus to be holy, to be one, and to be the light. I really see a prophetic statement in what you just said here 
And it even moves into your book, Be the Light. Unpack it a little bit about how you came into that book. And because I think that message is in the essence of what is said here. You see uber fragmentation, discord, despair, unbridled hopelessness, a broken world in every single sense of the term, not just geopolitically, culturally, spiritually, morally. I live in California. I'm in the trenches. So I experience it constantly. And I live in Sacramento. So I'm privy to what's happening here and even legislative initiatives coming out of the state that inevitably impact the entire nation. And I remember coming, I was writing at that time, writing articles for the Washington Post. And I came in and I went to my living room and I was writing a lot, but my writing became dark, Doug. It became dark. What do I mean by dark? It became very depressing, negative writing. And the Holy Spirit hit me and said, Sam, you're either going to do this. You're either going to talk about the darkness, rebuke the darkness, anoint the darkness, pray for the darkness, fast for darkness, or you're going to go into a room and turn on the light. Okay. And that hit me. And so I had that, that epiphany, that moment of Zen, in the words of John Stewart. And, and here's the, what, what the Holy Spirit showed me. The number one problem in, in America and in the world, for that matter, but more in America is not moral relativism, cultural decadence, spiritual apathy. It's a lukewarm church. The number one problem in America is not the fact that the devil is the devil, it's the fact that the church is not being the church. And when we care more about followers and when we, than, than the one we follow, when we care about losing likes, we're not defined by the likes of many folks. We're defined by the love of one. And when, and when we are more obsessed with the likes of many rather than the love of one, then we're going to compromise. And it's, it's the church in America. And I love the church. I'm the biggest fan of the church. I think the church is phenomenal. It's the greatest institution, the only one that will never be defeated. I get all that, Matthew 16, 18. I get it. But we have to act like the church. And when we're so fragmented, I heard the Holy Spirit said this, three things. Be holy. Holiness matters, First Peter 1, 16. And I don't mean old school, legalistic, rigid, man-made, dogmatically social construct holiness. I mean biblical holiness. Holiness matters. Be holy. Be one, John 17, 21. There is no such thing as a black church, a white church, a brown church an Asian church. And in, there's only one church, the church of Jesus Christ. And this fragmentation, this division, this discord on denominational lines, on streams, on, on certain doctrines, on, on Calvinists and, and Arminian, all this division, this, and now on race and politics, now we have Republican churches and Democrat churches. Who would have thought? And we actually have that now. We actually have pastors that say, if you vote a certain way, you can't be part of the church. you got to be kidding me. It's not biblical. There's nothing righteous about that. But be holy, be one. The moment a divided church will never heal a broken nation. A united church can change the world. So be holy, be one. And then Matthew chapter 5, 14 through 16, be light. Mm. A city on a hill will not be hidden. John chapter 1, verse 5. Light always overcomes darkness. So that's the call. Be holy, be one, be light. I wrote it for your endorsement, but it drove me to write that book, Be Light, from some years back. And I took that to the next level in, in my recent book called Persevere with Power. What heaven starts, hell cannot stop. And I dissect the spirit of Ahab, Jezebel, and Baal in our current landscape. And I lay out what it looks like to activate the Elijahs and Elishas of the 21st century. Being holy, being one, being light. It's totally doable, 
but it requires all of us to engage in that wonderful act of repentance. There is no revival without repentance. It's repentance that leads to revival, that leads to reformation. I love what you said about holiness because, you know, we're to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, which is the glory due his name. And But too many people have misconceptions of what that means. And so in my family, we talk about this. We say holiness is not some sort of external religious piety, but it's the inward consecration of your heart to say, Lord, my life is not my own. And even for me, sometimes I click my heels like Dorothy did in The Wizard of Oz says, I want to go home. I want to actually, my life is not my own. My life is not my own because it really isn't about an external piety. It's about an inward consecration of the heart that allows the Lord to rule and to guide us by his peace and to lead us into that place of representing him properly. And I think a lot of what we see today, even failure, you know, no leader, Sammy, I want you to address this. No leader sets out to fail. Oh. But we've been seeing lived out in front of us for decades, but now we're seeing a culmination. Uh, things ebbs and flows. Every new movement, every new thing comes out, and everybody thinks that's the right thing. But if we don't have a consistency in, along the journey, we see over and over and over again the failure of leaders, and no leader sets out to fail. And yet discouragement opens up the door for other things and disillusionments and even compromise. And we've seen that, sadly, so much more in the last few years than we've seen in a long time. And, and how do you, as a leader, address this issue of many of our friends, people we know that did not yeah. set out to fail, but they have either compromised or failed or, or bailed out of preaching the gospel? Even some <laughs> denying their faith now. And some wonderful people, and it breaks my heart, it breaks your heart, and they're beautifully created in the image of God, and it's devastating. And every time you hear the news, you, you really have a moment. I go to Starbucks, I drink my almond milk latte, and I break down a little bit, yeah. because it, it's one of our own. It's one of our own. And, and of course, we hear the adage, if not by the grace of God, there go I. But you go, what just happened? Doug, I was convicted this past December. I had a, I had a Holy Spirit moment. When God just gave me a word, I'm a preacher, right? So I'm a pastor. And, and God convicted me, a little rebuke, to be honest. The Holy Spirit told me, Sam, regarding the local church, you've been giving massages, and that's good. It's not bad. But the church needs a chiropractic alignment, and you've been giving too many massages. I broke. I broke. I wanted my church to feel good, and what they needed was an alignment that would get them, make them feel uncomfortable. But what they needed was an alignment. What they wanted was a massage. And sometimes we live, you know, following what we want rather than what we need. So, you know, to all of our fellow, to our friends who have, you know, the enemy has had temporary, I say temporary victories, because I still believe in redemption. And I believe that God can repair anything broken. And I, and I, and I pray the Holy Spirit will restore these, these ministries even to a greater, on a greater plane and greater level by his grace and for his namesake. But it, it's that reality. Doug, you talked about holiness. I talked about holiness. It's when the heart, the head, and the hand are in alignment with the will of God, with the word of God, and the way that is God. The heart, the head, and the hand. Your thoughts, your emotions, your nefesh, your soul, and your actions. It's that. When your feelings, what drives you, when the thoughts, your, your mind, and when your actions line up perfectly with the word, the will of God, that's holiness. And again, it, it requires every single day being vigilant, every single day living in the finished work of Christ, knowing that he did it all, 
that it was done once and for all, that you are guided by his spirit. His spirit defines you. And all you do is surrender every day, every single day. Just give it, Lord, thine will be done. What a prayer. And making sure that your actions and your thoughts and your sentiment reflect what you already know in the finished work of Christ. Now, you said something that I so resonates with me, that there will be some, because the redemptive work of God, that we see throughout even Old Testament, early church uh, uh, teachings and scripture, that those who may have seemed to fail come back stronger than before. And I believe that, and, I, and I'm praying for that. And I, I, years ago, I was reading Daniel 11, 32, many quote it, you know, those that know their God, yada, Y-A-D-A, that those that know their God shall do great exploits. And we love that scripture. But it goes on to say in the next couple of verses that when your leaders or teachers fail. Yeah. So we love to talk about the glory and we talk about the power, but then, but when some of them fail. There, it gives kind of a two roads here. One is those who go down the road of slipperiness and flattery, because flattery is slipperiness, uh, they'll continue to go down that road and fail. But there's others who have failed will also then come back to a place of humility before yeah. the Lord, and they'll become stronger and wider than before in the sense of being cleansed. So I see that as opportunities that too often we allow flattery to cause us to go down a road of slipperiness rather than letting our sin break our hearts because it's broken the heart of God and bring conviction so that we can say, God, look at me, King David, look, what have I done, Lord? And God then can do that with that brokenness and that humility. There's a thing in, in Asian Japanese culture called the art of kintsugi. It's to take a broken pottery and instead of discarding it, when it breaks, you fill it with little lines of silver and gold, and, and uh, it, it may look different than when it was first created, but the value out of brokenness is far greater than in its original context. So I believe that many of us, out of our brokenness, actually become stronger and more valuable in the hands of God. Oh, without a doubt, the redemptive, vicarious, atoning work of Christ can change and repair, rebuild, redeem, restore, renew absolutely everything. No one is beyond God's repair. Nothing is beyond God's repair. But it does require humility. It requires repentance. That's a strong word. It's not applicable in 2022 in many sectors of the church and so forth in society. But the idea of personal responsibility, the idea of acknowledging something, of confessing 1 John 1, 9, it actually works. I, again, it's my mathematical mind. I look at the Bible as incredible mathematical equations where two plus two equals four, and it always equals four. You open up your mouth, you confess Jesus and believe it in your heart. Yeah, you're, you're, you're saved. You know, there are things that are just, they are what they are. There's gravity. We're sentient beings, uh, you know, out of nothing, something. Yeah, there are some things we can't deny. So just, you know, do it. I mean, you know, do, I know it sounds very, very naive and very coy, but, but no, do it. Just do what the Bible tells you to do. And you'll see the results that are assured in the word of God. We're about to see some Elishas really rise up. We're about to see, Doug, you know what bothers me in, in this day and age? This uber unbridled condemnation of the emerging generations. Mm. There's everyone piling up on millennials and Generation Z are the absolute worst. They're the most hedonistic, agnostic, non-Christian, bottom of the barrel, 
etc. Oh, stop cursing the very generations that God will use to usher in the greatest awakening this world has ever seen. We're about to see more people come to Jesus as Lord and Savior than ever before in human history. And surprise, 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 guess who will be the generations leading the way? The ones that we whine about. Our Elishas are about to change the world. So get ready, folks. Well, we do have a prophetic generation. It's the camels that are coming. They may not look or smell like we thought they would, but God could have put his prophetic camel cloak on them, and they're going to come out of that wilderness, preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. Amen. A prophetic generation. I want you to address something, and then I want you to just share whatever is in your heart to conclude with. And one is that one thing I like to ask leaders, because everyone sees your successes. We didn't even get to your movie breakthrough, but We've seen your successes. What I've loved about this interview is that you've been able to share some fundamentals that help people understand who you really are, because who you are in private has everything to do with who you are publicly. We all have gone through unexpected detours in our leadership. We don't intend to have struggles and failures, but they come. What unexpected detours, or if there's a particular one you can think of that knocked the wind out of you, that you almost want to just say, this is, I can't do this anymore. And yet the Lord brought you through Uh, how do you overcome some of those kind of unexpected detours? And is there one that you think of that really has impacted you, but you were able to press through it? You know, I I alluded to the beginning years, my formative years between 14 and 29. That was a formative season indeed. That would be second. My my most trying time was when I almost, when I almost lost my daughter. My, we went through COVID. My daughter uh, just gave birth to my granddaughter, Mila, and her, my daughter's white blood cell count has always been lower than normal, but nothing that ever required medication. So in the low threes and COVID hit, she just gave birth to Mila, perfect storm, bam, her white blood cell count tanked. She ended up on a ventilator and I'm speaking to the doctor and the doctor tells me, yeah, if she doesn't fight, she won't make it. And I went, what do you mean make it? She'll be, she won't make it. Like, what do you mean by not making it? Because it's I was part of the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. So I had all the stats. You know, I was speaking to some of the people you see on television, uh, on Zoom calls. I went, what do you mean? Millennials don't die from COVID. Are you kidding me? No. And they went, well, your daughter's not your normal millennial, blah, blah, blah. And, and she was getting worse, Doug. And that's where everything hit me. Like, you name it. Every, every box I could possibly check, everything to analyze, ministry, calling, purpose, did I do the, you, know, you name it, it all came to one place. And, and that was the moment I had probably my greatest leadership lesson ever. It was Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. Same thing, verbatim. I'm driving in my Jeep Wrangler in California. I'm broken. I just spoke to the doctor. And I, I told God, I, I, have, I have no idea what to say. That was it. That was my prayer. I'm, and I'm broken now. I said, I have no idea what to say. I, I have no idea what to tell you. I have no idea what to pray. Hmm. I have no idea what to pray. I have, what can I say? I have no idea what to do next, but you do. Second Chronicles 2012, same identical words that came out of Jehoshaphat. We have no idea what to do next, but you do. And God supernaturally did intervene in a very miraculous way where I, the words came out of my mouth. I said, Lord, listen, not that I'm not a kid. I'm not Gideon right now. I don't need you to give me a sign. I've seen too much. I believe you regardless of what happens. But can you do a little something, something for me? Can you just show up in her room and fill the room with, with angels and 
let her know that that, that everything's gonna be all right. So help me, she'll testify. It was on we did it on TBN. My sister's praying in Philadelphia without knowing what I prayed for, same identical prayer, same time. And my daughter sends me a text, Dad, she's in ICU, dying on a ventilator, but she's a millennial, so she has hold of her, her cell phone. She goes, Dad, you won't believe this. It's not the meds. Angels just filled my room. She had no idea that I just prayed for angels. The word angels. Angels. At that moment, I knew God has this. What's the mathematical probability of her using the same words that I just gave him? Boom. And then she recovered. 48 hours later, she was out of ICU, out of danger. She's completely healthy. That moment put everything in perspective for me about family, about faith, about priorities, about everything. You name it. It just put everything in perspective. It put everything in alignment. And sometimes I discover in life that sometimes we need wake-up calls. And that's powerful and amazing because that is a, we overcome by the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony. And and even my wife, when she wrote the book, God did not do this to me, is based on what I said when I came down with stage four B-cell lymphoma cancer a few years ago. And I said, first of all, God did not do this to me. So she gave her perspective of watching me live out the messages I had preached. It wasn't just now a good sermon. She watched me live out some of the message. And I've watched that in your life. Share with us any final thoughts to leaders to encourage them. At the same time, also pray for them, Sammy. Sure. Final thought is Luke 137, the different variations of that verse. The word of God will never fail. Nothing is impossible for God. Another version reads, there is nothing God cannot do. I love Job who said, God cannot be stopped. He cannot be stopped. Everything God has ordained, predestined for your life, as you pursue righteousness and live in the vicarious, finished work of Christ will come to pass. You are who surrounds you. Make sure you put this, this, and this in perfect alignment of the word of God, the will of God. And if you can't do it, let the Holy Spirit do it for you, with you, and through you. Mm. Heavenly Father, yes, God. I thank you for every single leader. The fact that when you looked at this day and age in human history, this very precarious time, Lord, you determined that the people alive today with leadership mantles would be the individuals that would press forward, that would advance the kingdom of heaven here on earth. For such a time as this, we are literally alive. Lord, I ask you for a fresh anointing, 1 John 2.27. I, I ask you for a fresh infusion of your Holy Spirit. Do it now, God, by the authority of heaven. Whatever's out of alignment, Lord, put it in perfect alignment. This is not the day for a massage. It's a day for a chiropractic alignment. Do it. Even if we hear the crackle of the noise, we welcome it as long as we receive what we need, not just what we want. And Lord, we do believe that we will pass this mantle to the next generation. And accordingly, our children will not inherit our sins. Our children will inherit our mantles. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to encourage you today that we need your persevering and courageous leadership more than ever before. There is a vacuum. We've seen such a discouragement of people leaving the ministries, leaving the marketplace, those who have been strong leaders. So let us go out and be the light as Sammy wrote about, be the light, but also as representing Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and bring glory to your Father in heaven. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805 805- 
422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.